You are listening to the Global Politics of Counterterrorism, a podcast series from the International Center for Counterterrorism. In this series, we explore recent geopolitical shifts and the impact on human rights and the counterterrorism agenda. Welcome and thanks for joining another episode of the ICCT podcast series, The Global Politics of Counterterrorism. My name is Alexander von Rosenbach, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Daniel L. Byman. Daniel is a senior fellow at the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings, where his research focuses on counterterrorism and Middle East security. He is also a professor in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Daniel, thanks for joining us today. I wanted to start our conversation um, by just briefly understanding your own professional journey. Um, how did you get into the field of CT and how did you find yourself uh, making your way to Brookings and to Georgetown? Like many people of my generation, I came to counterterrorism in a rather twisting and unusual way. My own focus was on Middle East security for the U.S. government. And in so doing, I began to look at the internal politics, often the violent internal politics of several states, and also how Iran was using various militant groups like Hezbollah and many others to try to advance its objectives. So I very much saw terrorism in the context of broader political violence and also in the context of state competition in the greater Middle East. And I was working on these issues for the U.S. government and then for a think tank, uh, the Rand Corporation. And when 9-11 happened, I had worked fairly extensively on terrorism by the standards of the time. But terrorism, in a narrow sense, was probably 25% of my work before 9-11. And then after 9-11, it became 90 95%, given the tremendous policy interest and broader public interest in the issues. Um, so shortly after 9-11, I was involved in some of the investigations in the United States, uh, most notably the 9-11 Commission, into what happened and how the United States could better prepare for the future. Uh, after that, I moved over to Georgetown as a professor and simultaneously took a part-time position at Brookings, where I continued to work on these issues. And over time, my work evolved from very specifically focused on groups like Al-Qaeda and later the Islamic State to looking at uh, groups like white supremacist uh, violent organizations that have really become a major problem in recent years. Super, thanks for uh, painting us a little picture um, and also making a very nice transition to question number one for you, which is that indeed, compared to 20 years ago and even compared to just a few years ago, um, we see quite some change in, in the field of CT. Number one being that the U.S. Uh, priority and operational footprint in counterterrorism operations is significantly less lessened. And secondly, we obviously see uh, a greater focus on, uh, in the U.S. context, domestic terrorism, um, particularly under the Biden administration um, in recent years. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you see as drivers of those two perhaps interrelated shifts? So there's some good news on the counterterrorism front, and people who work on counterterrorism tend not to talk about good news, but I think it's important. <laughs> And so I would start by saying groups like Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State are a lot weaker than they were before. 
And al-Qaeda has been in decline for you know, many years now, and the Islamic State really has fallen from its peak in 2014, 2015. And so as a result, there doesn't have to be as much a focus on this. There's still some effort, of course, but less than it was 10 years ago, and that's appropriate. Um, having said that, there has been an increase in violence from white supremacist groups and other right-wing organizations. And this shows up not only in the United States, but it shows up around the world. We see surgeons in Europe. We see um, you know, horrific violence in New Zealand. And this is, in some ways, a more global movement than it's ever been. So as the death toll from jihadist violence has fallen in the United States and in other countries outside the Middle East, uh, we've seen an increase in other forms of terrorism. But what makes this even worse and more troubling is the political consequences of this violence. So when someone would attack the United States in the name of al-Qaeda or ISIS, there was a lot of rallying behind the government and in some ways a lot more unity in response to what was seen as a dangerous threat. With the right-wing and white supremacist violence, it touches on a lot of very sensitive issues. Um, immigration being one, gun control being another, um, a host of issues where even if, um, as I believe, the mainstream adherence to some of these uh, causes would reject violence, it's still a lot more political and has a lot more political ramifications. And as a result, under President Trump, a lot of this showed up in the basic political discourse, and it made the political consequences more important. And that's, in the end, what terrorists are trying to do is to shape politics. So we should, of course, look at the number of people dying, but we also need to look at the political impact. And I think it's more consequential um, today for the side of right-wing extremism and um, white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I think, indeed, the that point about we, we were pretty good at counting bodies both for and against in the global war on terrorism for quite some time, and now recognizing that that might not be the way to measure success, um, at least not to measure failure, where we, where we see... Uh, there are other challenges rising. Can you talk a little bit more about um, maybe what you see underpinning that change? Uh, so you, you, you've identified the, the trend. I know you've written a lot about this, including in your most recent book, Spreading Hate, The Global Rise of White Supremacist Terrorism. Can you get to us, what, what, where do you see the grievances coming from in the domestic sense? How, how um, are, are those new challenges? Are they simply repackaged under a, a different political context? What What is really at the core of this rise of of, uh, of white supremacist, white nationalist terrorism in the U.S.? There's a lot going on that has led to a surge of this broader movement, but let me highlight a few different things. One is demographic change that has steadily reduced the numbers, but also the influence of white Christian males. And so you had a host of grievances. Some were anti-black or anti-Semitic, some anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim. And these have all merged in recent years, where groups that once had disparate goals and concerns are now unified to a greater degree, at least in their ideas. Um, and of course, this has entered the mainstream political discourse. And President Trump showed the power of this, where he went forward with ideas that I would consider somewhat racist at the very least, certainly anti-immigrant, and brought them much more into the mainstream. 
Um, and uh, with all this came a greater suspicion of government. And part of this dates to the financial crisis. Part of it is COVID. And there are a host of different issues that have led to this. But you now see large parts of the American uh, population that are very suspicious of the government. So when you combine all these, you get not only kind of vehement um, anti-immigrant or white supremacist sentiment, you get a lot of suspicion of the government itself. And that to me characterizes much of the movement today. Um, yeah, thanks. So I think what your answer just touches on there reminds me of, of work we have been doing a lot in recent months here in Europe, looking at the broader frustration with democracy as an institution and this notion that citizens are no longer seeing democracy as the way in which they can effectively um, enact political change. And that is leading to a whole host of grievances where individuals and groups are forming around extremist or potentially violent extremist expressions uh, that they deem more effective and ultimately in some ways maybe even more legitimate than than democratic uh, institutions. Um, is that something that you that you see and understand from your own research? Uh, how how does that um, how does that align with your understanding of the phenomenon? Uh, unfortunately, it is something I'm seeing in my own work. And let me talk about several drivers. Uh, so one is there's a broader sense that elites are failing their countries. And this showed up in the financial crisis where this kind of broad economic consensus collapsed in the face of a widespread financial crisis. Um, it also showed up with COVID where many people were greatly dissatisfied with their government's response. Um, add to all this the broader demographic change where there are many people who believe government is no longer on their side. And this is something that leads to resentment of minorities, but also broader suspicion that government is, is not supportive and at worst, not truly legitimate. And as a result, many people are rejecting the legitimacy of government, the value of government, and an extreme fringe is even arguing that one needs to take up arms against it. If we, we then have some choices about how we respond to that, um, what do you see firstly is happening in the US or in other countries that you've studied in terms of responding to that uh, narrative? And in your view, uh, is that response um, going the right direction? Is it effective? Is it landing? Or, or is there more work to be done? Well, there's certainly more work to be done. So that's, a, that's an easy one. But let me talk about a little bit of progress. So I would highlight two things. One is that the social media companies have at least recognized that they have some responsibility for the broader discourse. And 10 years ago, their view was very much, you know, hate happened, and that's really not our job to police this. And there are still 101 different problems but at the same time, there is a much greater effort in this regard. Um, also, we're seeing a rejection of some of the most extreme claims. And if you look at the 2022 US election results, um, the candidates who were the most anti-democratic 
tended to do poorly. And so I have some hope that this movement may have peaked. But having said all that, many of these candidates are now holding elected office. And it was a very powerful narrative. And the question of demographic change is one that's not going to change. And so I think we're going to see this continue. Um, part of my hope would be that the politicians, I'm going to say on both sides, but it's a much bigger problem in the United States with the Republican Party, will return to more traditional conservative views and not have this strong anti-government sentiment. Uh, but that's something that uh, at best is going to be a fitful process. And we have a long way to go. Yeah. And then to think about that same question, but a little bit more broadly in, in indeed the sort of the global context, what role do you see China or Russia having in uh, inflaming some of those um, some of those grievances or inflaming indeed the underlying question about whether democracy as an institution has value considering they have other uh, political models? How do you how do you see their narratives and, and their efforts in the context of sort of winning the, the, the battle for uh, maybe we'll reuse an old and, and outdated phrase, the hearts and minds out there? Uh, so we saw Russia in 2016, and uh, both countries try to, in general, cast doubt on the validity of democracy, try to play up polarization. Um, having said that, in the latest elections, the problems are much more domestic. So foreign countries can exacerbate them, but there are only really a rounding error in the many domestic voices that have been creating these problems. Um, I do think the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has taken the allure off the Russian model that was much more popular a year and a half ago among a small number, but still significant number of uh, conservatives. Um, and the Chinese model ha is also seen as less promising because of their many problems managing COVID and in general, the sense that their economic model is not producing the amazing results it seemed to be producing for many years. Um, but that said, the tremendous political problems the United States has had in the last six or seven years are also hardly inspiring. So you're going to see voices around the world that are wondering what model is the most powerful, where they should be looking to. And it's unclear to me that many will automatically look to the United States, as would have been true, um, I would hope, 15 years ago. Thanks. Thanks for that. It's, um, yeah, it's, an, I think, an important issue that we all need to, to figure out how to get at to, to revitalize the, the, the value of democracy as, as, uh, as a principle. ICCT is focused on protecting, upholding the rule of law and uh, human rights. I think that is inexorably caught up uh, in the value of democracy and, and freedom of expression and ideas. So it's one that, uh, that we take very seriously and, and will continue to work on. Can I tilt the conversation just a little bit forward looking now? Uh, we've talked a lot about sort of the, the, the challenges up to present day. Where do you think... Um, the USCT and CVE policy, maybe as CVE policy gets to some of these more fundamental grievances, where do you think we go from here? Um, 
as a as democracies, but as a, maybe picking on the U.S. government in particular here. So the United States has had many successes in counterterrorism policy, narrowly defined. So whether it's law enforcement investigations of the January 6th perpetrators or the broader intelligence campaign against al-Qaeda or Islamic State members around the world. And this has disrupted groups, led to the death of main leaders, and otherwise, I think, greatly reduced the threat of organized terrorism. But you have a lot of disorganized violence, and you have the potential for organized groups to renew themselves. And the United States has not succeeded on countering violent extremism. And a lot of this is simply due to the lack of, I'll say, academic capacity on what to do. There isn't a strong set of ideas on what works. Uh, many of the programs are untested or only work in narrow ways. And as a result, it's hard for government to engage deeply on this. And when government does, it often fails or even backfires. Uh, U.S. government efforts are full of, I'll say, well-meaning attempts that have often alienated the communities that the government was trying to win over. Or there are programs that might be reaching out to communities where there isn't a significant problem to begin with. So I think the broader the lens gets, the more problems we see. But I would highlight that the narrow efforts involving law enforcement and intelligence have actually done quite well. So do I do I read then in your answer that the solution, or maybe not the solution, that's a big word, but the way forward is to focus on what we do well and stop casting the net more widely than we necessarily know how to do effectively? Is that your sort of policy recommendation in, in a nutshell? Uh, from a policy po point of view, yes. I would add, though, that it's worth studying the bigger solution. Um, they tend to not be very expensive. And in addition, if we can learn about them with limited academic research or our more broader policy experimentation, it's definitely worthwhile. But we should rely on them for success. Yeah. And because you touched on sort of our lack of understanding of what works or what works and is scalable, um, how do you, do you have recommendations or, or ideas about how we can get better at that side of, of our work? When we do do something, how do we make sure we are doing it effectively? So one of the constants in counterterrorism is the need for effective intelligence collection. So what we see with 9-11 or January 6th is intelligence services that are not properly resourced or at times not properly coordinated. So that basic task, which is kind of obvious, but very difficult in practice, that's something that would be very valuable. Thanks. Um, I want to maybe leave us with just one last question, if that's all right with you. I'd have been quite generous with your time. I guess the, the question is um, really about what we... We know that there are a lot of policymakers and practitioners working on the every day on these challenges. If you have to give one sort of final parting piece of advice about how to um, some of the lessons learned from your own research on white supremacist terrorism, 
what would you be telling these individuals as the the key thing that they should be keeping an eye on uh, in the uh, in the coming years? I would stress to them that the biggest challenge is when terrorism and political violence involves broader political ideologies that are mainstreamed in the media or by politicians. And as a result, it makes it exceptionally hard for counterterrorism or law enforcement officials to delegitimize the violence, to get communities to cooperate against it, and to contain the political fallout when an attack does occur. And so that nexus to me is particularly dangerous and the one that needs the most attention. Thank you very much. Um, appreciate it again, Daniel Byman. Um, thanks for your time and your thoughts. Uh, we look forward to speaking with you again. For all of those who have stayed with us, thanks for listening. Um, there are, of course, more episodes of this podcast uh, to be available, so please uh, go check it out, and uh, we look forward to finding you another day. Thanks. This podcast was created by the International Center for Counterterrorism and is part of the series, The Global Politics of Counterterrorism. You can find more episodes and information about our work on our website, www.icct.nl. This show is available on any major podcast service, so please subscribe and spread the word.